Mm. Oh, could I ask you both, sorry, to put something round your, like, round your headphones so there's a little bit of, like, noise cancellation? I'm going to do it as well. Yeah, at least for you actually have an actual head wrap. <laughs> I got a t-shirt on my head. Hello, this is Greater, Stronger, Wiser. Two overthinking musicians. I'm Philippa. And I'm Hannah. And we're doing a series of podcasts in which we have deep chats about music, life and other things. If you enjoy the podcast, please leave a review or if you have any questions, let us know. You can find our details in the bio below. Hey guys, so this episode we decided to do an interview with my sister We wanted to do an episode about refugee rights, about family reunion, um, because it's something that we all feel pretty passionate about. Um, And Millie has worked in a couple of refugee camps, one for a year in Samos in Greece, and she's also been to Calais a couple of times. Myself and Millie started a petition last year um, for family reunion, which you can find in the link below and that we'll be talking about. And... It's something that me and Philippa have talked about a lot, going to protests together and um, Philippa raised money for Safe Passage for the EP that we did as a band, which is called Disadvantaged. You can find it on Bandcamp. Um, I'll link it below as well. Send us any questions or your thoughts, whatever. As always, we'd love to hear from you. Also, I just wanted to say before the podcast begins... We have a slight crackling on Phil's mic this week that starts about halfway through and it's a bit like... So um, just give me a heads up. Um, Your phone isn't freaking out. It's not being weird. It's the mic. Um, I did my best to try and resolve it, but um, I am an amateur and I don't have that much time. So yeah, lots of love. Hello. Hello. Nice Hi. to be chatting with you. So uh, we're chatting with Millie this week, my sister. Yeah. Um, God, I feel so ridiculous with this on. I might actually turn off the vi- video. Is that all right? <laughs> <laughs> I just feel a bit there distracting. There is cute. I your face. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Fine. Hi. It's nice. <laughs> I am actually going to take a screenshot. That's so cute. I haven't done mine in a very stylish way. No, I like it. I it's like good. it. It's fun. Thanks. He looks really good, Millie. Really. <laughs> he looks really good. He looks good, Phil. <laughs> what are you wearing, Hannah? I can't, it's like blending in with the it's background, but it's like, you look like you're wearing a bonnet. <laughs> it is a bonnet. I always yeah. wear a bonnet. Um. So, yeah, we're chatting with Millie this week, who... Yeah, it's my sister and generally cool person. Do you want to, like, tell us a little bit about yourself, Millie? Sure. So I am... How do I describe myself? I'm an English literature graduate and I have spent the last few few years working um, in different sectors of like uh sort of humanitarianism or supporting people so spent about a year working well volunteering in Greece uh with an NGO Mm. um supporting refugees in the camp on one of the islands Mm -hmm. um and I also spent a year working in London uh with a homelessness uh organization uh as a support worker and I am currently living in Jordan where I am studying Arabic 
um, which I decided to do after I was in Greece because I saw that it would be a useful skill to have. And I'm about to start a master's in September uh, in the Netherlands in conflict studies and human rights. Wow! Yeah. Why did Very I know cool. That? <laughs> yeah, I recently got uh, accepted. I'm very excited, although a little confused about what my plans are going to be, considering coronavirus uh, oh. travel um, restrictions. But yeah, we'll see. Mm-hmm. So cool! That was a great introduction. Very yeah, cool. Wow. Person. I feel like I missed some things out. <laughs> I feel like whenever I tell people about you, they're like, oh my god, she sounds so cool. She just does what she wants. That's amazing. I'm like, <laughs> just around the place. It's also quite scary. I don't yeah. know. Uh, yeah. It's nice though. Um, I didn't mention our petition. That's something that you do with me. Yes, yeah. Talk about the petition. That. Uh, yeah, so, I mean, other things I do are, like, I am currently trying to do a little bit of freelance writing and also, like, <laughs> uh, try and include activism in my life. And one of those things is... Uh, are you laughing at the table? No, no. I'm laughing, <laughs> about, laughing the, um, the about the article that you recently wrote. Your debut Oh, so in my journalism. freelance writing career is about to uh, kick off <laughs> with, the mag- with the magazine article about cats in Jordan. <laughs> and I'm not ashamed of it. And I'm very excited. And I've loved writing that's cool <laughs> it's been great um, cats today yeah <laughs> it's called the cat theme. oh yeah theme cat the cat oh yeah I thought it was cats today sorry yeah, yeah. yes yeah and I've been writing about street cats and my cat and everything I maybe I'll just start a cat writing career yeah uh, yeah but one of the things about just in terms of like activism and oh I think Philippa, something happened with Philippa. Yeah, something with the connection. Let's just keep going. She'll be able to be added on. Okay. Just, yeah. Sorry, she can join him. Um, yeah, just in terms of activism and uh, obviously also I think this is something that has been a great thing to be able to continue remotely. Mm. Um, has been obviously the petition that you and I started mm-hmm. last September, mm-hmm. uh, which was when we read the news that family reunion for child refugees was going to be... Um, cancelled as a scheme Mm -hmm. by the government Mm -hmm. after Brexit Mm -hmm. Uh, and that's like an EU-wide scheme um, that uh, basically is mandatory for EU states um, to be to take part in um, that the UK is no longer no longer gonna um, take part in in the same way um, after Brexit Mm -hmm. So basically, me and you started a petition, a petition mm-hmm. as you know, mm-hmm. um, yeah, in September to basically ask the government to continue the scheme, mm-hmm. and yeah, maybe we'll talk about it a bit later. I don't know if you want to talk about it now. Um, let's see if we can. Oh yeah, she's back on. Yeah, and Phil's internet is struggling. Yay! Hello. Uh, 
Um, so Millie was just chatting about the petition that we did. Um, yeah, and then I think at the moment, so what's happening is that we have made a little bit of progress in terms of that. It's being negotiated mm-hmm. and the government is saying that it's something they want to plan in. Mm-hmm. But the main thing is recently um, they've done a little bit of a backtrack and basically they... Um, they're now only making family reunion discretionary mm-hmm. after Brexit and they're not going to make it mandatory, mm-hmm. that's their plan mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so so that's one thing and that by not making it mandatory um, that it means that they can say yes and no as they please mm-hmm. it's, it's not something where they have to say yes in all cases and they can turn down cases just mm-hmm. for whatever reason yeah. um, they're also, a key thing is that they're removing the right to appeal Oh my so goodness. anyone, so... if they feel that there's been a wrong decision, they will. <sighs> there's no right to appeal. Oh my gosh! So basically, this is all vulnerable yeah. children who have family in the UK, say parents, an uncle, brother, sister. Uh, these are children under 18s who are most of them either in uh, refugee camps in Greece, or um, in camp in like informal camps or settlements in France, or living on the streets in lots of mm. European countries, mm. who've been identified by. Um, either charities or the states as being eligible to be reunited with family Mm. which to be honest you know people should deserve to to have as a right Um, Mm. and that the UK government is currently saying we're maybe going to let you in but maybe not let's Mm. see and if we make a decision that you're not happy about that's tough luck you're Mm. not able to Mm. appeal so we're currently still fighting to to try and strengthen the commitments mm-hmm. on that. Mm-hmm. But at the moment it's still in place because mm-hmm. we're still technically part of the EU. Mm. But the the issue <laughs> even with the family reunification bill is that it didn't really it didn't really protect that many children anyway. Like what we had what was it 200 or tell me the numbers about how many children have come to the UK under that bill if you know through family reunification um I don't know the numbers actually Mm. I'm not sure I don't even know if they have a clear set of numbers maybe I can look at it later um okay um I'm just interrupting your podcasting experience um, to say I did a little numbers check on this um, and I found a Guardian article where it said that a Home Office spokesperson said we support the principle of family unity and have reunited over 27,000 family members in the last five years. Obviously, you know, when you're talking about numbers, it's so hard to get the individual stories and you know the real lived experience of that it's also important to note that 27 family members can include people of the same family so but just a little insight into um how it works in the UK is um I found something from the refugee council a report that was done last year and the report is called safe but not settled I'll link it in the Um, description below and it says refugees in the UK often find themselves separated by their family from their families by their brutal experiences of conflict and persecution just at the time when they need each other the most this separation can drag on for years or sometimes indefinitely 
because of the UK's restrictive rules on refugee family reunion. The UK only allows adult refugees to apply for their partners, married or civil, and dependent children under 18 who were part of their nuclear family before they fled their homes. Grandparents, parents, siblings and children who have turned 18 are not considered family. However strong their bonds of love, and in many cases shared suffering are, and however dependent they are on their family members who have reached the UK. So just thinking about this, like, thinking about who you would want to come with you if you if you had fled conflict. If I had been living with my family all over 18, I've got two sisters, one 27 and the other 25. Is she 25? Yeah. And if I had been living through persecution or war or whatever and I had fled and I'd managed to get to the UK, most likely because I'd been smuggled on a really difficult journey, spent all of my money um, and even when you get to the UK you're uh, you're at risk of being deported back and say I managed to get here and I'd somehow managed to get asylum and my sister was still living in Idlib or was living in a refugee camp in Greece um, perhaps she has mental health issues perhaps she has a learning disability perhaps she's she's suffered extreme trauma from what happened which is most likely I would have no grounds to be able to to bring her to the UK with me, to come and live with me, to come and share in our grief together, to try and hold together the last fragments of my family, of my life, of my of who I am after all of those things have been lost. So I would be completely alone in a new country, um and I think it's these these realities that can help us to relate to what a botched system this is and how inhumane it is. I mean, in our human rights law, there is a right to res to respect family and private life. There are many cases in which this has had to be used where courts have felt that the government have not been respecting this in relation to refugee rights. Um, so I thought I'd just interrupt and give a little bit of background. Um, as I said, I'll link the... Um, I'll link the report underneath so you can read it. Um, back to the podcast. But one of the main problems with family reunification mm. as it is currently obviously we what we've done especially with the petition with um, lobbying for the scheme to be continued yeah. we obviously not wanted to focus too much on the issues it has currently because it is at least a scheme that is put in place and that is safeguarding some children yeah but if we were to look at the scheme as it is and say what can we do better of course there's a lot of things that could be done better and one of the main things is the bureaucracy within it mm. and the fact that the waiting times are just horrendous and you imagine that you're maybe like 16 years old for example you've been uh like you fled your home country where there's either been war or mm. you've been persecuted um you know you, you your life has been at risk and then you've made a seriously dangerous journey across mm. multiple countries probably across the sea by boat that you have risked your life in you've had to sit in a refugee camp where you've been living in a tent you've had like little access to water and food and then um 
you know, you know that you've got a family member in a safe country where you would like to reach and be reunified with them, mm. but you're told by someone, oh, sorry, okay, we know that this is, um, that you're allowed to, that you have a right to be with this person, but you have to wait for six months, eight months, nine months, mm. whatever. And obviously many of these young people have such poor mental health mm. by this point, if they didn't already. Um, so actually there's been a lot of suicides from young people um, <sighs> on these waiting lists when they've been, um, you know, they've been waiting for months and they lose hope or they lose hope and so they decide to go for another option. So they decide to go for smuggling routes anyway mm. and they decide to go maybe in the back of a lorry or opt um, to be smuggled by other routes, usually in lorries. Sometimes they try and get on trains, particularly if it's the... Uh, between France and the UK mm. and obviously then they're risking their lives and a lot of people have died that way as well mm. so the system is definitely definitely flawed right now but what we're trying to say is at least there's a system mm-hmm. let's keep it in place yeah. let's improve yeah. it mm. let's not make it discretionary yeah. let's not say there's no right to appeal let's not say there's no system let's just mm-hmm. let's keep the system and then hopefully we can mm-hmm. work to improve it yeah exactly mm-hmm. absolutely no it was really well explained thank you um yeah but yeah we've been working on that for a bit um, yeah well mostly mm-hmm. you mate I mean like we started it together I, I mean I remember we mm-hmm. we just I think it was like what September last year and me and me mm. and Millie watched the film Lion and were just oh, yeah. completely bawling oh my god I was in floods of tears watching that film (laughs) me too oh my god it's a beautiful film what Uh, a good film so we were literally just like a sloppy mess on the sofa like marshmallows (laughs) and then like I just like checked my guardian app like a you know the millennial that I am and um Mm -hmm. and the headline was family reunification set to end with Brexit and we were just like what Mm. the hell and we we like I remember googling like if there was a petition and we were like there's not one let's start one and it kind of mm. plodded along well, for a little while of... but sorry you go no I was just going to say that both of us then also you know me from working for nine months mm. in Greece and having been to Calais as well and you had been to Calais mm. at least once or twice by that point mm. and you know both of us had experience of the the um of the situation in those yeah. places and the context that a lot of these young people are living in and I don't know about you having been in Cali but I I personally knew a lot of a lot of minors mm. who were living in these situations and I knew that they would be the type of people who'd be affected um, and it just you know not not that um, it means that it's uh, any more important if you if you know the people but obviously it makes it more real right absolutely and um yeah I think we both just realized how much of an impact this could have mm. and we were not okay with it but I think we were thinking well there's surely a petition already and there wasn't so we yeah. made one and then I think after still like a week two weeks it had like a couple thousand and we were like okay let's forget about it yeah. and then I remember I think I logged on once I think I got an email saying um, your petition is making an impact. One person has signed, and I was like, "Oh, great, cool, thank you." <laughs> and then I think I checked it because I was like, oh, "I'll just check it." And then I texted you, and I was like, "Oh my god, Hannah, we've got sixty thousand signatures!" Wow. <laughs> we were so excited, I couldn't believe oh, yeah, it. So and then now, what have we got? We've got like three hundred and forty thousand or yeah. more, three hundred and forty-five thousand maybe. Um, 
and it's insane as well thinking you know we can send updates to those supporters mm. and that's such a lot of you know I talk sometimes about with friends about like whether you feel like you have power in society mm. and I think we all have power we all have voices but it's amazing also thinking that you and I like just through this thing that we started we mm. have a voice to this many people and it's like yeah. kind of unfathomable to me yeah absolutely absolutely and I you know I'm so grateful for you Millie for doing most of the work on it and for doing those updates and for being in contact with Safe Passage and for kind of just like doing the whole thing really <laughs> like I've still got my name Safe on it Safe Passage is uh... a <laughs> but... <laughs> hey no you've been a great support with it though and like I've really needed your advice and support when we've just been like writing yeah. updates or yeah she's like yeah, can you just proofread this helpful. and I'm like yeah go on go it's great <laughs> go for it you do your um... thing <laughs> Just to clarify, Safe Passage is a mm. legal charity that um, works with uh, child refugees, mm-hmm. uh, particularly in France, but also in Greece, and uh, connecting them with family or with legal routes to the UK. And they're very, they do really amazing work. Mm. Mm. Thank you for clarifying that. Yeah, yeah, Phil, you um, you donated some portion of um, profits from your EP, didn't you? To Safe Passage. Yeah, yeah, that's really that's cool. Very cool all those profits <laughs> all those <laughs> profits from thank you to those five people that bought the UK yeah. <laughs> you go, lucrative uh, endeavour yeah. <laughs> you're just in it for the money Philippa honestly just in it for when the you care so about the music exactly. <laughs> or the children or the children exactly. or the people what about the children Philippa I wanted to sort of pick up what you were talking about. You know, you you talked about the journey of that individual person. And you both have been to Calais and well, you've been to Greece, whereas I haven't been to either of those refugee camps. Mm. And I'm sure that some people listening to this podcast haven't been either. And so many people view those refugee camps through the lens of the media mm. and so many people have yeah. misconstrued understandings misconstrued um, perceptions mm. of what those places are like mm. so could you yeah. just could you exp- yeah could you just like talk more about that talk more about um, why what do you th- what do you think actually people understand based on your conversations that you've had with people no it's a really good question um, should I shoot Han? Yeah, yeah, go. Yeah. Um, Yeah, it's a really good question. And I think there is a lot of misunderstanding, misconceptions. Um, Also, a lot of the comments that we... Like, some of the comments I get on Twitter with sharing the petition and um, Mm. various things related. Or even comments on the petition. I have no idea why these people are getting updates because they've clearly signed the petition and they're interested, so it's strange. (laughs) But a lot of... You know, you still get a lot of comments from people saying, um, you know... um, talking about how great of a deal refugees get and how they're just coming over to steal jobs or or they're lying about their ages or you know real mistrust of people mm. basically um and you can see that a lot of this comes from fear but it comes from misinformation mm. as well yeah. and i think you know there are some there are some media outlets that are doing a really good job and some really good reporters on the ground who are um working to change that but mm-hmm. it's yeah it's a mixed bag and i think um I don't know, say, okay, if I start with like, the situation in Greece, for example, um, particularly the island that I was on, Samos, 
um, has quite a similar situation to Lesbos as well, mm. which is an island just north of it. And both of those are the most overcrowded islands. They're also the um, the places where people generally uh, land when they when they're arriving from Turkey. Mm. Um, both of those camps are insanely overcrowded. There, I think, Samos is at like ten times capacity at the moment. Oh. The majority of the residents are living outside of the camp the camp has capacity for about 600 670 people i think something like that and it currently has i think at the moment it's like six thousand um and just interrupting with the official numbers um so the camp was built in samos and for 650 people in December last year, it reached 8,000, and at the moment, it is nearing 6,000. And you imagine living in a camp like that with one doctor, who's usually available, mm. uh, one of, like a couple of water taps that are running, and the water is only turned on for a few hours a day. Mm. Uh, the electricity is dodgy at best, and if you live in a container, which is the minority of people which is like kind of a caravan then you might have some electricity but most people are living in tents outside of the camp mm. and they're literally full of rats um because obviously there's not enough waste collection people are living on top of each other um sweltering heat in the summer really cold and rainy in the winter the food sometimes the food all arrives moldy mm. and it's not even fit um I wouldn't wish that situation on anyone for a single day, no. let alone people no. for two years. I knew, I knew someone who'd lived there for two years. Um, yeah, the situation is just mm. very, very dire. Um, and, you know, whether it's someone is, whatever age someone is, whatever gender mm. they are, whatever the situation is, it doesn't, like, you know, I think we talk about, especially obviously because of our petition, we talk about... Um, this not being a place for a child. It's not a place for a human. Yeah. Anyone. I wouldn't yeah. even put an animal no. there. No. Um, so that, I mean, the island camps are particularly bad and the government is, I mean, the mainland camps are also, I have a friend who works in Athens and the mainland camps are not in a good, not really a, not a pleasant place to live either. Mm. Um, but I think I'm marginally better than the island camps. Um, mm. The government tends to be uh, hesitant to transfer people from the islands to the mainland mm. um, just because uh, there was a, an agreement between the EU and Turkey um, which basically was intended to increase the amount of deportations, particularly for Syrians. Mm. And um, it means that people are being kept on the islands in order to wait for deportations if they're not successful for their asylum claim. So it means that that's that's what increased the amount of people living mm. on the islands, basically, this agreement in 2016. Mm. Um, yeah, and then you obviously have, uh, say, Calais, which is a, in, in northern France, which is a different situation, but also really dire. Mm. And um, But a lot of people are living in informal settlements there, so hiding in the woods, mm. um, living in tents, mm. um, relying on... Uh, donations of food from organisations mm. being almost daily evicted and chased and mm. beaten by the police and their in both these burned. places there's a lot of police violence yeah tents tents burned or slashed their phones um, oh, broken I think that's one thing I want to get onto actually when we move on to talk about the Black Lives Matter mm. movements yeah. because I think in a lot of these hotspots and a lot of these locations 
a big thing that's happening is police violence yes. and it's either not being seen or it's being overlooked yes and it's police violence towards people of color mm. basically it's not mm. happening to white people and mm. it and i you know i can't foresee something that is that doesn't exist but i can bet that it wouldn't happen to white people yeah mm. um so i think this this is a really big issue particularly um something to think about and focus on at the moment yeah yeah so I think just I guess drawing from that like what um what kind of decisions do you think are being made on the kind of on the bigger table of Europe in terms of the legislation and the decisions you know talk about the decision for Turkey to deport people especially Syrian um how do you think that kind of mood is um you know intersecting with Black Lives Matter Mm. Well, I think what we're seeing is like an increasing securitization right. of Europe's borders and an increasing sort of closure of mm. the borders. Mm. And Europe is giving Turkey money mm. in order to hold on to these people, to push them mm. back. And in my view, they're giving them money and basically saying, do it however you want. We don't yeah. want these people. Yeah. We don't want them. You deal yeah. with them. And then Turkey is... I don't think there's someone exactly to blame on this. Um, in this. Like, someone is not necessarily worse than the other. Because, I mean, there are reports of Greece shooting uh, people trying to cross mm. the border. And there are police reports of Turkey shooting people trying to cross the border. And I've heard reports of police violence from either side. Mm. Also, the Croatian border is a particularly violent spot. Mm. Um, I mean, police violence has been happening towards people on the move for a long time mm. but um and I don't know exactly if it's increasing um but it's being noticed a lot recently mm. and particularly what we call pushbacks so mm. people who are trying to who either are trying to cross the border or who've already crossed the border into Europe and then the, the um state forces usually the police but sometimes the military are basically literally violently pushing them back through force either beating them um remove like taking their belongings um shooting at them mm. sometimes shooting them people are being killed i mean there was a two-year-old girl who was killed a couple of years ago in mm. belgium um while being chased by I the police that. um and she's called murder um another thing that's happening in Greece particularly recently um I think this has been increasing is that the Greek um it seems to be there have been a lot of reports um it seems to be that the Greek government is um basically either um the Greek Greek coast guard sorry um is uh finding a boat in distress in its mm. waters which means that that boat should be rescued it has an international mm. obligation under maritime law to rescue the people in distress in that boat instead what they're doing is they're destroying the engine of the boat and they're pushing them back towards turkey mm. or they're people who are just about arriving on the islands and they are picked up um mm. they're put on a different boat on a dinghy and they're pushed back towards turkey mm. so then literally people being set off for another journey in the opposite direction mm. which we don't know if people have died or survived mm. from. Um, so... And just thinking about... There are a lot of violent pushbacks happening. Yeah, and, and thinking about, like, the actual human cost of this, because I think when you say, like, mm -hmm. boats and people, you don't really imagine, like, there are 
there are children on these boats, there are women on these yeah. boats, there are men on these boats. Like, these are people who've had yeah. endured immense suffering and trauma that we could yeah. not, you know, most of us couldn't yeah. imagine living mm. where we do. Yeah. And this is how Europe's treating mm. them. I mean, it's it's a violation of 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 European law, right? That they're doing it is a violation this. of European law. It's a violation of human rights. Yeah. I think one really key thing um, that I I didn't realise until I went to Greece, until I spoke to people, and that really hit me. I remember having a conversation with a friend of mine who was Iraqi, and um, it wasn't often that I spoke to people about their journeys, despite how many months I was there mm. because it's not something that you want to ask outright to people sure. and you know it's a very traumatic experience so yeah. if people are willing to give that story that's something that you listen to and that I was um honored to listen to honored in a strange way yeah, um it's a privilege. but the yeah exactly um but I remember one time sitting with a friend of mine who was Iraqi and he was telling me about his experience and um, who's basically telling me that so you you find an organiser you contact a smuggler before uh, they tell you to be in a certain place at a certain time sometimes you get to that place usually like a beach or near um, near to the sea they might put you in accommodation you get told to wait you get told to wait again you get told to wait days and days and then basically finally the time, time arrives and in this situation he said the time arrived for them to get to the beach in Turkey to go to Greece and he'd been told initially that it was going to be just a few people on a safe boat. Mm. It won't be very long. The guy will be with you. He'll drive you there. Blah, blah, blah. Mm. He gets to the beach. He said he sees this tiny dinghy that just looks like flimsy as anything. There's about 80 people on the beach. Oh, my gosh. Uh, families, people of all ages, everything. He turns around and says to the guy, I don't want to do this. I'm not getting on this boat. Mm. This smuggler has a gun. Of course he has a gun because all of these people have paid. And they are going to turn on him uh, because they're seeing that they're putting their lives at risk and danger completely. They're not going to want to make this journey. So he, at this point, has to force them to do it. And not only is he forcing them to do it, he is picking one guy from the group and train and showing him briefly, I say training, not training, showing him briefly what to do with the engine and oh saying you're driving the boat. Because if the smuggler drives the boat, he's going to get put in prison if they get caught. And he's not going to risk his situation. So one thing that a lot of people ask uh, or criticise about people who arrive in Europe from boats uh, or when it's talked about people risking their lives, uh, a lot of people criticise the fact that they've put the children in these boats, um, that they've put themselves in these boats, that they shouldn't put themselves in danger. And yes, completely, um, you know, they're also running from a terrible situation, they have no choice. But often, literally, they have no choice because they're being faced with a gun. They're being faced, they're being put at gunpoint to get on this boat. I would probably take my chances in a, in yeah. a dodgy, as anything, boat yeah. than get shot on the beach yeah so a lot of people don't realize that as well and I think that was a big uh that was a big piece of information for me mm. that didn't it didn't exactly you know I think either way you have to have empathy with with anyone who's in this situation mm. it's, it's a situation you wouldn't wish upon anyone mm. but it helped me to understand a little bit what happens during the mm. during that journey yeah wow mm-hmm <sighs> I think 
I think a lot of people don't hear we don't hear those sorts of stories or or we block them out I think like Mm -hmm. I'm so interested with I know I think about the people who I know in my life and I think well just the people you walk past in the street you think do you know like is this something that is talked about or how is it talked about because mostly in you know on the front pages of the most popular newspapers in the shop I mean Mm. obviously that's not how everyone's getting their news these days but like it's all the information you're getting is pictures of black and brown faces in big Mm. crowds and you get the words swarm and mostly they're men and they're seen as it's seen as a threatening thing and I mean I guess it's a lot of the ways in which it ties in with the with racism and with Black Lives Matter um, and just thinking about like our perceptions of race, our perceptions with people of colour being so mm. impacted by by things like this um, or these things impacting our perception of colour yeah. as well it's a vicious yeah. circle right yeah um, absolutely mm-hmm. yeah yeah that we perpetuate these myths and I think um I mean you get this trope as well then often people who are trying to justify the existence of immigrants or Mm. refugees in a country is then begin this story about the good immigrant and say oh but Mm. immigrants contribute this and this and uh, refugees contribute this to the economy and I mean I think this can be part of the discussion but it completely Mm. overlooks the fact that these are people yeah and that they are deserving of the basic yeah. human rights regardless yeah. of anything regardless need to of any yourself. of their qualities yeah. or criteria or whatever yeah. they 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 should have the human rights yeah. and maybe to some people that's a value system but yeah. like that needs to be respected and yeah. um, that often gets overlooked well it's something that's quite scary about the points-based system that it looks like we're heading towards because that's all mm. about valuing people who've got qualifications and who are you know middle class or they can afford mm. to come here like I mean, I mean, we have that anyway and thinking about the journeys that people yeah. couldn't afford to make and thinking yeah. about, you know, visas and all of that stuff. Well, these are racist policies. Yeah. I mean, you think about, like, it's generally much easier to get a visa um, to other countries mm. if you're from a white country. Mm. Um, and I think mm. it's also an extremely racist... This is a racist system in which we, you know, uh, this is why, say people who are from predominantly or traditionally white countries can usually access like the, a large part of the world with visas or mm. with the money with money with money mm. <laughs> um and that we make you know we make life so incredibly difficult that we make thousands and thousands of people mm. lose their lives mm. from countries that we that are predominantly not from the west mm. And, you know, these and that's are... exactly how it's been designed because yeah. the points-based system essentially puts it back to you're only as worth as what you can provide yeah. for us. You're only as yeah. worth as mm. your body, essentially, right? Yeah. So, like, yeah. you're only as worth as your work, which is all black and brown people have ever done for mm. this country or the Western world. But also the system is designed exactly how it's meant to be. Like, 
there was no mistake in mm. the way that it's being designed like and the way that it continues to be designed there's no mistake mm. in that yeah but also it's such double standards because mm. when asylum seekers arrive to this country they can't actually contribute mm. even when they want to even when they're sat yeah. for two years doing nothing and they want to contribute but actually mm. they can't mm. and so it's just like yeah. so actually what do you want from people like it is just a case of dehumanizing mm. like the system is designed to dehumanize people yeah. who are not disempowering white. yeah yeah like exactly yeah. yeah it's completely designed yeah. to do that just yeah. to yeah. clarify Definitely. for anybody who doesn't know so if you're an asylum seeker you're not legally allowed to work in this country and you can be a seeking asylum for up to 10 years and you can be detained mm-hmm. um, at any point during that time with no warning, no reason. You can go to a detention centre, basically be put in prison for a limitless amount of time. I mean, there are just horrific stories about this. Um, you know, we have lots of detention centres in the UK holding people who've been through lots of, you know, horrific amounts of trauma and sexual abuse and then going through it in a lot of cases, again, in detention mm-hmm. centres. Yeah. And people people can be an asylum seeker for up to 10 years and even then your claim can be um, rejected and you can be deported. Um, and it's it's just such a... It, you're right, Philippa, it's such a deliberate system and it's so mm. painful because, you, I mean, you hear, you know, Boris Johnson or various Tory politicians saying, oh, we care about people and we want to make sure that, you know, thinking about family reunification, they're like, oh, we're, we're dedicated to letting the best. That's not actually that mm. good impression. Well, every, like... time I write to my, every time I write to my MP, it's yeah. something along the lines of, oh, Britain has a long history of valuing nah, nah, human nah. rights. And it's like, Fuck this you, is just Simon words. If you, like, like <laughs> actually, like, it, it's just words. <laughs> doesn't yeah it is you do not care no it is it is it's built it's built on not only devaluing human life destroying human life and profiting from it um yeah and i think actually thinking about detention centers i think this is there's a real connection here i think to when i you know often people who have been taken to detention centres, uh, police raids. Um, mm. Sorry, there are police raids in like the middle of the night mm. where they might just like gain access to the house mm. and tell a family in the middle of the night mm. that one or many of them have to leave and they take them mm. to a detention centre. Mm. And children are literally or people are literally traumatised by this, and this can mm. happen several times in people's yeah. lives. And they might a few weeks later be arbitrarily let go again. And you know what this makes me think of? It makes me think of the militarization of the police mm. in the states. Oh, it's it's just a lot because it, it just is. It is I was just listening to a podcast earlier which was talking about Pan Africanism, mm. and um, yeah, it is just that for a long time in history, particularly thinking of Black Lives, you know, um, mm. uh, just a lot of a lot of civilizations have decided to dehumanize black people mm. Mm. Uh, in order to in order to ex- in order to like yeah exhibit supremacy mm. essentially mm-hmm. and like mm-hmm. enforce their supremacy mm. yeah um, and to justify that supremacy mm. and to justify that supremacy mm. and i think yeah. 
yeah it's just it's heartbreaking that it is mm. yeah it doesn't matter it, it doesn't matter like yeah for black people it's been a really long time but it also it's just it has extended in that because it's become about skin color mm. you know because it is about skin color you know you've decided to define mm. um your supremacy based on your skin mm. color now it just mm. means that anyone that's not white or appearing white mm is now devalued and yeah. that hence that's extended to this you know the the treatment of refugees from mm. all across the world mm. you know and the sad sad thing is most of those so my family from uganda so i know a lot about that but mm. also just you look at the unhcr so the un human what's the un un U- un human, human rights commission Human Rights Commission. UNHCR. No, sorry, UN, UN, UNHCR. Oh my god. <laughs> the Human Commission UN, of Rights. Hey, it is. No, it's UNHRC, isn't it? I just. No, it's UNHCR. What UNHCR. does it stand okay. for? Oh my god! Wait, I'm looking. At <laughs> uh, United Own oh, United Nations High Commissioner for oh. Refugees. Sorry. Yes. Close. So they report a lot on refugee statistics Mm. and where they're placed in the world, where where there are massive camps of refugees in the world. And most of them are in Uganda. Like Uganda is in like the top 10 countries it takes in refugees. Mm. So that it just really pisses me off when our country's like, we don't have enough space. Like we can't take these people in. It's like, you've actually just decided to force that narrative. Like you've actually decided Mm. that's the narrative. narrative You've actually not taken on the number of people that, you have inflicted this amount of suffering on anyway based on your policies based on your history Mm. right whereas countries like uganda who are a struggling nation anyway Mm. have these large camps of people who are seeking refuge Mm. you know um Mm. it's so true there are a lot of countries in the global south Mm. have the largest proportion of refugees Mm. being held there so like when you're yeah. batting these people away, when you're saying don't come here, don't stay here, it's mm. like because there's not enough space, because there's not enough, you know, we don't have enough. Yet the most richly resourced mm. countries, yeah. the most richly resourced part of the world, mm. is saying don't come here because we can't, we can't afford to. Yeah. And it's actually like, well, the countries that really can't even afford mm. to look after their own citizens mm. have created space mm. for mm. countless numbers of people. Mm to have refuge yeah. how they yeah. treated is mm. you know that's and another those are story. also the same countries that we have stolen resources from yes. and that exactly. we have exploited massively massively in terms of you know everything from kidnapping and stealing and murdering their mm. citizens mm. um to stealing outright stealing resources mm. and exploiting them um yeah and also i mean turkey and lebanon and jordan also have really high numbers of refugees i think Mm. lebanon about a quarter of the population is um they are refugees wow um it's huge so you know when we're talking about the numbers of people that are coming to europe and coming to the uk and you know i just think it's a disgrace especially when we look when you know i've actually seen firsthand the awful 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 conditions in a camp like the one in samos in greece uh where literally you're living among rats and sewage and you don't know how long you're going to be there Mm. and people are giving birth to their children in that Mm. situation and yet an eu country 
that okay Greece is not rich but it's being assisted by the EU mm. there are funds it can't it can't even cope yeah. so you know what is going wrong it's not the amount of money it's the yeah. policies yeah. and to be honest I am pretty sure that the policies that are in place in a lot of places like Greece maybe not well no I think actually deliberately um are deliberately that way in order to act as a deterrent mm. Yeah. For people to contact absolutely. other people they know to say back home, actually, it's shit here. Yeah. Don't come. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, they're, they're not going to make want to make it a palace, but it's not. Yeah. It's you know, this is, it's the complete opposite of palace. It's a, it's a shit. It's a shit hole. Yeah. And I mean, that's that's what UK law has been around this for the last mm. few years. It's actively yeah. creating a hostile environment. It's a hostile environment for people. Exactly. To they even called it a hostile yeah, environment. Yeah. They weren't clever about no, it. No, so I remember w- when I was studying and um, I was writing, uh, writing an assignment about about this, and I did all this research about um, different legislation that the UK government had um, had made <laughs> to um, about refugees and about about what their lives would be like here, and in writing in so many places it was saying we want to create an environment so that people will, will be deterred from coming we want to create a hostile environment we want to like deplete resources for these people that so they can't work they can't have adequate housing i mean the housing that you get in this country i mean i've visited asylum seekers doing different you know social work roles i've visited asylum seekers in the most appalling accommodation um there's one i mean philippa i know you interact with these people um really regularly through church um but there's one place in the center of birmingham where i went in and it was this single room um in part of a kind of shared living facility but i wouldn't even call it that it was felt like barracks and it was in this kind of courtyard and the house the houses or apartments or whatever you can call them the little tiny the buildings just were all so stacked together in this room smelt beyond anything I could I could I could explain um there was blood stains and other sorts of stains on the mattress there was no sheet no bedding and this person had come had come there um as a asylum seeker seeking asylum because of his sexuality he had lots of mental health issues he was going to be deported he had no recourse to public funds so it was likely he was going to be deported and he told me that he was going to be killed on his return he knew um because of his sexuality and he had next to nothing in this room but i know i knew that he'd been living there for what six months to a year it's such a dire situation that you're in so it's like okay you go through you go through all of that from leaving this place where which is war-torn or you've experienced persecution you've taken that treacherous journey that Millie talked about and then you stay in a refugee camp for up to two years I mean this is potential journey then you maybe you get smuggled flight onto the UK and potentially then you could be deported I mean like it's just unthinkable isn't it when you think about the lives that Mm. kind of so many people live here yeah 
and it's so hidden it's so hidden mm, we don't talk about hidden. it we it don't we and we t- we're scared i think i think so many people are so reluctant to engage with it because it just feels like this thing that's just that's just too overwhelming and it's easier to say like just push it away like that's their problem and it's like it's your problem <laughs> like it's everyone's problems we it's, need to talk yeah, about it's this. not yeah i think it's not just like a lack of wanting to face well i think it's not it's, it's, it's a lack of wanting to face it as well but i mm. think it's also you know there is an information gap in some senses in the in the way that of course the information is there but it can be hard to find or it can be obscured and of course the messages that the government uh and that major media corporations are Mm. putting out are not any uh, far removed from the life that you're talking about um so you know you have to be actually interested and willing to search for these things which means that you're willing to challenge your mindset and it means that you're willing to accept that you're someone who is privileged which i think makes a lot of people feel guilty makes them feel feel personally shameful like ashamed because they then think it's a personal attack that someone's saying it's your fault that other people are having a Mm. hard time Mm. but i think obviously then it's an amount of separating yourself from that and saying no it's a systemic problem that i am part of yes i i partake in it and i'm privileged from it but it's not my personal fault so i don't need to feel Mm. actually as if i've done something in terms Mm. of like i made the system Mm. but i take part in it so i need to be aware and i need to try and do what i can but i think that is actually a real a really difficult process for a lot of white people to go through yeah. and I think I've I think I think I've been through it myself yeah. or I hope I have been um in that there was one point where I actually felt kind of guilty mm. for being white which sounds ludicrous mm. and it oh, sounds like me. I'm even taking this day oh I'm so white <laughs> but I think that's how a lot of people yeah can feel yeah. and then you know even saying that out loud makes me sound like ridiculous no. because it's also taking the stage away from the fact that uh, like there are there are people who are actually suffering abuse and racism yeah. and I just felt a bit guilty but then it's it's when you start to see those conversations as saying this is a systemic yeah. problem yes you're part of it but let's change it mm. and I'm not blaming you mm. I'm just saying there's a systemic problem mm. and let's let's change it be an ally mm. I think Does that make sense? I heard that was really, yeah, I think something that I heard that was really helpful today mm. is that um, for so long, particularly in Britain, we have viewed ourselves as victors, mm. as mm. givers of democracy, givers of enlightenment, givers of all these things, right? And it's, it's cr- it creates a lot of burden on white people. A white, I think white people have a lot of a burden <laughs> to be the deliverers of hope and peace and all these other good mm. things and all these large attributes and human rights so when they're confronted with the fact that they actually have failed in in the area of human rights Mm. it's a bit shocking because they're so used to being the deliverers of that they're so used to delivering proper civilization to people Mm. and something that i think i heard today like white people need to learn they need to be liberated from the idea that they're perfect Mm. like white people need to be liberated from the idea that you've got it all figured out and you've got all the answers and you you're you're delivering liberation like mm. you need to get rid of the idea that you're here to give out liberation like you need to liberate yourself from that because yeah. like you're not here to do that like 
you can't do that no human being mm. has all the answers right we're all human mm. we're all figuring this out we're all trying to understand how we fit in this world mm. and white people need to understand you are not the shit mm. <laughs> and i'm not saying that in like a well yeah it's just like white people just need to understand like yeah it's okay to be wrong like yes. it's okay to not Definitely. be perfect it's okay to not yeah. have the answers yeah. like yeah once you recognize and once you realize that you don't have the answers mm. you can go seek out the answers right like once yeah. you realize you 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 don't have the keys to freedom like you can go like okay so where are these keys Could, oh yeah. well maybe it is the, i don't know <laughs> and the lord has people, the keys to freedom the lord has the keys to freedom and then we all sing a song and hold hands in a circle yeah. <laughs> No, I think that's a really good point. But I think point. you're right. Yeah, it's a, a really very good point. Because point. otherwise it plays into this. We just continue. It's, I mean, okay, so I've been reading this book, um, How to Be Anti-Racist by Ibram X. Kendi. Mm-hmm. And it's been really interesting. It's broken down a lot of things for me. And I think um, a lot of these things that were sort of related to what we're talking about. And I think one of the things that he talks about is being... Uh, is that saying that you're not racist is not enough, Mm. that you need to be actively Mm. anti-racist and that you need to, if you feel like you're just in the opposite of being racist, that's just a passive, Mm. basically, ultimately complicit Mm. standpoint to be in. You need to be actively making an effort to be anti-racist, whatever the way that might be. Uh, And he also talks about people who talk about themselves as colourblind, um, and who say like, oh, I don't see color, whatever, and like, basically just, just um, those people. Yeah, it was just I was just making. <laughs> well, I but I think it's something that we're all prone yeah. to. And he also talks about being racist not as like a label in terms of like this is such a terrible um, uh, thing that I don't even want to be associated with it, which of course it is. But it's about it being an adjective that we need to kind of almost not shy away mm. from using because we we're so terrified of it that it's like uh, we're so terrified of being labelled as racist that we then stop being able to see that actually we live in racist systems, we live in racist societies, mm. and of course that will be ingrained in our thought patterns. So it needs to be an active mm. effort to overcome it all the mm. time. And it just made me think about it a bit when you were talking. Philippa about um about those hierarchies mm. um well what made me think about like what is a hierarchy mm. essentially um of white people feeling that they need to be the ones that are perfect and mm. need to be the ones that are having things sorted out and mm. actually it's about saying that the we need to break down that mm. hierarchy and but obviously the only way you can do that is to say okay obviously the construct of race that we have made it to be does exist and we need to mm. recognise that and we need to tackle that, not saying, I don't mm. see race. Yeah. Mm. That makes that sense. Re- that mm. really makes sense. And I think also probably, yeah, that's really interesting. And um, I think it ties in with a lot of things that people say about, like, I think this notion of white privilege people really can misunderstand and can really feel quite frightened mm. by, especially a lot mm. of, like you know white people who you know maybe on the poverty line maybe really struggling at the moment with unemployment and all kinds of things like you know um or have suffered immense trauma with other experiences in their lives and you you hear the phrase again and again i'm not privileged why are people telling me i'm privileged and it's this it's this separation of understanding that 
okay, you may have all sorts of issues in, in your life and that's really difficult, um, but your race is not making this harder. Your race is not amplifying this and your race is not another thing that's, that's um, oppressing you in your life. And actually, by, and from that, you do have certain privileges that you need to recognise that you can support other people. And I think, like, so much anger can come from this kind of... Yeah, I guess it's like that feeling of needing to be... Um, you need to be perfect so that when any of your flaws are pointed mm. out, like, oh, you know, there's this issue of... Um, I don't know, we need to diversify things or we need to, like, work in this way to help us understand better about um, how to be more inclusive. I think people have that issue of, well, no, everything's fine because we're perfect and, like, we're the best country in the world and everyone wants to come here and we have equal opportunities for everyone and what's the problem? And you're like, (laughs) okay, like... I would also say that I think... This is something that, um, I don't know, I think sometimes we can talk in like such an abstract way about these things. Mm. This is something that I also definitely need to remind myself of and, and is something I'm continuing to like learn and think about. Um, but I think just that idea again of trying to be, trying to see, wanting to see yourself mm. as perfect. I think we can also do when it comes to wanting to be a white yes. ally. And then when there's any criticism of that yeah. or like, well, you got these things wrong or you know you hurt me on this yeah. or like I, I think you should read up more yeah. about this whatever um which I think can can happen whatever your background mm. but I think particularly if you're trying to mm. be a white ally I think there can also be a defensiveness mm. that you know I sometimes find myself maybe uh going to and wanting to be like but I'm I'm not that person I'm not the person mm-hmm. I hate but actually obviously when you go to that then you continue to be the yeah. person so yeah. it's like needing to it's like a continual yeah. self-reminder like it's okay that sometimes yes. I get it wrong because no yeah. one is perfect yeah. but it's an openness it's yes. a willingness to listen yeah. and to learn yeah. and to, to and how freeing is that me. like that's one of the exactly. most freeing mm, things ever yeah you can you can let go of yeah. that perfection in other parts of your life as well, <laughs> and it will continue and that's to serve liberation. you. Yes, totally. Mm-hmm. I love that. Like, it's it's not about like, it's not about saying white people need to be better. It's like yeah. actually, white people you need to recognise that you're not the best. Yeah, and that's okay. Yeah, absolutely. That's that is a freeing thing absolutely. to know. Like, yeah, yeah. I think it is, and I think. No, oh, no, you sorry. go, you go. No, I was gonna go on a different. I was gonna go on a different train. No, that's all right. You go. You you, you go on with your train life. <laughs> on my train life. On my train life. <laughs> um, I was just thinking, just back to earlier, when we were just thinking about when we think when you were talking about that story of that person from Iraq mm. who had gone through all these different things, and when you're talking about the different journeys. Mm and the different parts of that journey, I think too many people just distill it down to that one moment of them arriving on mm. this shore, right? And I think it's the same way that we treat... So I, I really want to bring it back to that, but, like, we can't just talk about Black Lives Matter in this in the ter- in terms of this moment, right? It's part of a long mm. journey, yes. on a long story and a long history, yes. right? And it's the same <clears throat> with 
people who are seeking refuge and asylum. Mm-hmm. This is part of a long mm. journey. This is part of a long story. This isn't just part of like, oh, they had trouble. They looked for, re- they sought mm. refuge. Like, we need to understand the systems mm. that are at play globally here, mm. because it's not just a result of. I mean, a lot of the, they're just. It's so complex. It's so complicated. Yeah. And for us to just say that it's just one thing, actually, just again dehumanizes mm. and it's so reductive in terms mm. of the way that we think about things and then the way that we approach things we just so approach things really. in this like mm. let's fix it quick sort of way and it's actually like no these these things take a long time yeah. and this is hard work and this is real understanding real people need to be understood you know like Millie and and Hannah and, and also myself like, I don't think we would have had have so much of a connection if we didn't know people mm. who have been through these processes mm. and been through these situations and are currently living in them right mm. now right I think when we're talking about asylum seekers and refugees I think it's important mm. for people to broaden their friendship circles mm. you know broaden your friendship circle broaden the people that you interact with mm. and broaden the you know diversify your friendship groups like we, we need to diversify, you know, the board and we need to diversify the, the who's at the table. But like, that doesn't start until you've diversified yes. who you interact with, yes. until you've heard other stories, mm. until you've actually understood, like until you've yeah. properly empathised yeah. yeah. with an individual. Because yeah. I think this is the other reason why it's so hard. Like, it is hard for people to empathise with just so, uh, someone yeah. in an article, mm. right? Yes. I'm not, I'm not giving people like a get out and be like, oh, you just read an article, so it must be so hard for you to um, empathize. Like, we're human, yeah, but you have exactly. the capacity to have empathy. Yeah. But like, also have different friends, like mm. branch out, mm. you know, meet other people. Mm. Mm. <laughs> like, you need to look at your friendship circle and if they're all the same, like yeah. if they all speak the same language as you, if they all mm-hmm. have got the same background as you, yeah. if they all, you know, have this a similar type of education to you mm-hmm. a similar type of family home to you if that's the case that's a problem definitely yeah definitely but obviously then it's trying to make sure that you go forward in that way from a place of genuinely wanting to like you say diversify and empathize rather than collect yeah. and fetishize rather than get yourself absolutely yeah no totally yeah yeah definitely yeah. and um, i think yeah. i think you can you can also learn things through like you know hearing like joining local activist groups if you want to learn more they're really good places to do that kind of thing Mm. um so long as you see yourself there as somebody who is there to learn and to kind of um yeah understand better about Mm. those situations or just being Um, part of your community yeah i think joining any group to yeah. meet people and just branching out right yeah absolutely mm-hmm. branch just out branch guys out. Seriously, <laughs> i think it does make a massive difference seriously like mm. Have, i think yeah. is, are you speaking like from experience phil or like you're i'm just wondering if you yeah well partly on, on both sides in terms of being someone who has mm. been part has had the privilege of growing up in like fairly diverse groups mm. you know um, mm. but then also being the token so like mm. speaking on both sides of like I've been the mm. token hated it those people aren't my friends anymore <laughs> and I can say that because I doubt that it must be a horrible <laughs> feeling and I don't think I realised it until I was no longer in it right yeah. I don't think I realised it until I had a friendship group who mm. genuinely it didn't feel like I was a token there mm. and they'd never actually said Flip you're our token black friend to me do you know what I mean like 
that I never going to see. <laughs> Can't imagine that they would. No, exactly. Whereas in friendship groups where I was, that had actually been said. Do you know what mm. I mean? So like, don't be that guy. But then at the same time, I've been yeah. in situations. I mean, I just remember when I was at college. So I was really lucky that the sixth form college that I went to, my friendship group was really diverse. Like I was, you know, I'm from, I've got Ugandan heritage. One of my close friends had South African heritage. Another friend, she was mm. from Hungary. And then another friend had Iranian heritage, Persian heritage. And then another friend mm. was, you know, your standard white British Yorkshire you know like but like we had <laughs> good we old had Donny. such a di- and then uh, yeah and then I had like another friend with Chinese heritage and like another friend with you know all Kashmiri heritage you mm. know like all I was really lucky to be in that kind of environment so yeah, I think it has great. so it has impacted me and it has caused me to want to understand other people better or it's just it's not even I just don't see people I don't, you don't I see just, colour, Phil. Ah. You don't see colour. <laughs> I find people's difference intriguing rather than threatening. Yeah. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Like I yes. find people's difference. Yeah. yeah. So it's not that I don't see it. It's like, yeah. oh my gosh, you're different. And I think for me, maybe it's partly like, oh, you're different yeah. like me. So I've always been, I've, maybe I've just mm. been more drawn to people who are different like me. I don't know. But mm. like, I don't think that is the case because yeah. Yorkshire's still very white, right? Like, so you can't really escape mm, these yeah. friendships, you know. Um, but yeah, so I think it's that case. It's it's that thing of I have had, I, I and I would regard it a privilege because not many people do have that. You know, most people do grow up in very white mm. towns. For mm. in the, in in the circles that I'm mm. in, anyway, like you know, going to Birmingham Uni, where most people come from, like the home counties, mm. you know. So like that's all mm. their experience has ever been yeah i think there's so much value in mm. in a diverse friendship group mm. definitely yeah for sure have anything that they want to add especially you mill i feel like i've talked a lot it's good it's Make great our guests. um yeah and i, I realized maybe you guys didn't talk about uh, one of your main themes being music oh no it's fine we'll leave music for this week. <laughs> <laughs> a long break. uh yeah i was just having thoughts about uh growing up in a small white devon yeah, town i was thinking about that but I, I can, can I ask a question on mm. that? Mm. So, based on your experience, because I think a lot of people use that as an excuse, mm. right? For sure. But yeah. you two haven't decided to stay in that place. So, what was the difference for you? Like, what is the excuse breaker for you to be like, yeah, so mm. that's the ex- that's the environment I grew up in, but mm. actually, that's not that's not going to yeah. define how I treat people. So, yeah. You go first, Mel. <laughs> well. Okay, um, I guess, I mean, I don't think just just because we didn't have a lot of, like, a diverse exposure to, diff- to, like, an exposure to a diverse range of people, it doesn't necessarily mean that you're brought up with the view that you should treat people differently, but obviously it's, you know, it is different when you're not um, around, like, a, a diverse mix of people in mm. your friendship groups and growing up with 
uh, with people from different backgrounds. Mm. Um, I mean, and I wouldn't also judge anyone who stayed in our hometown because there are lots I'm of reasons still here. why people <laughs> want to stay. And yeah, well, you went back, okay. and um, it's yeah. I think I don't know. Um, I yeah. I mean, it's it's like. I think you can be brought up with the awareness that this isn't how the rest of the world is and the rest of the country mm. is without being able to, for it to be immediately shown to you, if that makes sense. Mm. Like, you know, I wouldn't say, like, I blame our parents for bringing us up in a very, very white town. Um, and I think they did a good job of of um, supporting us to kind of, you know, or just encouraging us to to be kind and empathetic to anyone no matter where they're from mm. uh but yeah i think you do have to have a bit of a want to to like get to know people who are different to you yeah. and um to go to places that are different to you to mm. leave that situation and i think i'm sure for some people who stayed it can then seem threatening when you're not mm. used to it but i wouldn't just leave that as an excuse i don't know what do you think han yeah i agree i think i think it's interesting that the effort has to come from you because it's like when you're in a town that's not particularly diverse it's like then you think okay I'm gonna um make an effort to understand other experiences so you know Millie you went um Mm. off you went to Uganda and Kenya after your first year and did some in university yeah and did some Mm. projects and I don't know if you want to say why save your projects. Why, well, I know. I was just saying that. I was like, did some projects. Which <laughs> Okay, I did an internship in Kenya, which I got a lot out of, and I was, I it was, I felt like it was a much more equal ethical endeavor. Yeah. Uh, I then went and did a volunteer project in Uganda for like a month and it was like a local run NGO which like I don't think it did any harm but I don't think it did any particularly good particular good and I was just a random young white person with like not that many skills turned up and did some teaching English and it was something that I tried to think about at the time in a careful way but I've since looked back on and gone oh my god yeah I know um and I think we can all learn but I think you know this kind of white voluntourism or like poverty tourism or this kind of stuff like uh, there I have real issues with it and not as a judgmental person from the outside because I was that person yeah and I thought I was doing it with good intentions and I yeah and it wasn't like I don't know like I went and I genuinely wanted to learn from people but also like it wasn't it wasn't a very sustainable activity to yeah. do and I don't and I don't think it was the most equal activity and I don't really think I uh, contributed very much in yeah. that situation. But I think also, Mill, that's not necessarily... Because I really do remember you thinking hard about it before you went and mm. you really didn't want... There were a few projects that you saw and you were like, oh, God, I'm, not, I'm really not sure about that. And I do remember yeah. speaking to you and you were like, I don't know if I'm that useful here... And it was run by local, like, local people. It wasn't run by, like, an outside kind of, like, UK-based thing where they were like, come and join us, come and pay and volunteer. Yeah. I think for me, the... (laughs) Sorry, you go. (laughs) Um, I was just saying, I think it's... Which is so ridiculous. But I think... um, Mm. I think it's almost like, how do you... 
without having had that experience, how do you get to that place of understanding about all those things, about volunteerism, about all that white saviour stuff? You can't go from being in a really Mm. small white community to then suddenly having all that understanding. And when there is this system of kind of oppression and, you know, we are, as you say, as you said earlier, we have this view of ourselves that we're superior. And so we can go and help other people in the world. And it's like mm. uh, when you have all of those opportunities there for you and that's yeah. kind of the kind of guided route and it's a lot harder yeah. to do anything else. It is else, a guided route. That's yeah, then for sure. likely yeah. going to be what I, you do. Yeah. I think the thing that I've thought about a lot since is not that I shouldn't have gone necessarily, but mm. I should have gone in the capacity, not to, not to that organisation or whatever, but I, if I wanted to genuinely go to East Africa and uh like have an experience i should have gone and just had a visit like traveled around met people talked to people learned things and like just gone to visit and then also you know i think i would have got a lot Mm. more out of it in maybe like a more sustainable ethical way Mm. and i would have also you know been on an equal footing with the people Mm. i met and then maybe some genuine skills that i might have been able to contribute Mm. to organizations supporting people Mm. at home where i could actually speak with people i have a similar experience i could connect with them in an easier way Mm. i should have done that Mm. but i think that's also you know, like you were saying earlier, Phil, when we're told as as people growing up in the UK that we need to gift our wonderful education and heritage to other people in the world, mm-hmm. you kind of inter- you internalise that. And, you, and I think that is what feeds a lot of this white voluntourism yes. that uh, uh, is very popular. I saw a poster in Exmouth and I it was for a charity. I can't remember what it was. But it was like this black child you know where they have the bigger bellies because of malnutrition and like it was this like white middle-aged guy like bending down holding his hand out to this child he was holding his hand and I was just like are you kidding me you actually kidding Mm -hmm. like is it this it's just perpetuated everywhere like this image of like bending down to help a black child it's so just ingrained and And then you think about the un report that uh states that one in five children are in poverty in the uk yeah and it's like poverty isn't an issue for people of color (laughs) it's Mm. like yeah 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 it's like is it no I'm not saying it's not an issue of people of colour but it's like it's not it's not like it's not necessarily it happens to everyone in every country in the richest of countries I'm just interrupting briefly to say that the um, UN report says that one in five people in the UK 14 million people are living in poverty currently and the numbers of child poverty are actually higher at one in three Um, and I'll link these reports down below as you'll probably know this week these figures have come into the light a little bit more with Boris Johnson blatantly lying on a number of occasions about child poverty figures being deliberately misleading, um, sometimes quoting absolute poverty figures. So absolute poverty is when a household income is below a certain level, which makes it impossible for the personal family to meet basic needs of life, including food, water, shelter, education, healthcare. Relative poverty is when households receive about 50% less than average household income. So they do have some money, but not enough money to afford anything above the basics. 
I hope you're enjoying the um, background effects of my little four-year-old neighbour. Back to the podcast. How does that make you feel, Phil, when you see stuff like that? Um, I just... I'm just so... It, it, it's gross. It grosses me out. Like, if I ever, mm. you know, I'm watching daytime TV, I literally just change the channel because it's actually not... It's, again, dehumanising that person mm. because yeah. it's not... And it's just totally not giving you a full understanding of the situation. Yeah. yeah. Right? Yeah. It's not giving you a full yeah. understanding of the situation. Mm. And it then perpetuates this idea of what black people are and what they always need to be helped they always need to be Mm -hmm. i don't know like so whenever they're they're not valued for you know having any intellect whatsoever or any ability to Mm do things and so like mm. when when people are like oh let's go help black people in out in africa it's like mm. it's not about how do we support these people in in a way that encourages them oh i don't sorry i've like lost my train of thought but it's like no 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 it it, it just doesn't it doesn't it's not give empowering a full picture to what a, what black people are you know like yeah. it doesn't give a yeah. full picture to who black people are and yeah it doesn't allow them any agency it removes all mm. agency it's completely disempowering yeah 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 absolutely absolutely and so they want when they want to rebuild and when they want to you know grow and no longer be in those situations of poverty like it's not mm. seen as mm-hmm. uh, a viable option without the support of a white man yeah 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 exactly. yeah yeah Hashtag Congo Tree. Oh, I love charity the Congo that Phil works tree. with. Ah, mm-hmm. oh, I was reading so some good. of the testimony sticks. That's what I was. That's yeah. They're just an amazing yeah. group of people who encourage young Congolese people to support other young Congolese people. You know, it's so like so cool. the first mm-hmm. team that ever did the Wild Program, which is the training program that we do as part of Congo Tree. Mm-hmm. Are now the team leaders and like the people that run it out on DRC. And I'm literally just here to just do like social media. <laughs> like that's no, it's great. Yeah. We both know. Thank you for listening to Greater, Stronger, Wiser, Two Overthinking Musicians. We'll see you next I'm week. Too tricky to handle. Too tricky to handle. I'm too tricky to handle